Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, so um, posted a third part of my uh, long form interview with Jeff Levin this week. Uh, you guys can check that out. And also did a podcast with my wife this week. Now, she and I sit here in our apartment, and we have long and involved and very interesting conversations. But she <laughs> we did this podcast, and we talked about human rights, and we were both pretty nervous. And so she kind of clams up when she's nervous, and I talk a lot when I'm nervous, and so it kind of, it didn't really come out exactly as I wanted. I mean, I kind of dominated the conversation, but um, uh, but it was still fun to have her on, and I still thought that we covered some pretty good topics in terms of human rights, and I think that she definitely had some good things to say during the course of it. So, Anyway, if you guys are interested, you can check that out. Um, it's, you know, the human rights is, uh, civil rights are something that are really, really important to me. I wish if there was one thing we could all agree on, it would be that. Um, you know, I think, if, I think the world would be an amazing place if we all could have a baseline agreement on, on at least what our rights are as human beings. But apparently that is, you know, say la vie, that is not, the, not to be the uh, way things are right now. All right, anyway, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Venom Dust 1. Living in Hawaii, I was aware of Scientology in the late to early 80s. My older sister worked in a Waikiki hotel and had a lot of high school friends also working in hotels. If I wanted any information from surf heights to what scams people were talking about, I asked my sister. When I asked about Scientology, she told me they are no different than the Hare Krishnas. I heard you mention Hawaii briefly one time as one of the underperforming centers. Any more information about the Hawaii Scientology connection? Yeah, Hawaii was actually the very first place that I ever got sent out on a Sea Org mission. Uh, this was, uh, yeah, this was, oh, no, sorry, the second place I ever went out on a Sea Org mission. The first place was right across the street, so it didn't really count much. I was in Los Angeles in the Sea Org, and I had joined in the summer of 1995. And in the fall of 95, I went on a project or mission across the street to the uh, big uh, St. Hill organization and, and did some stuff there. But in the following February, I went to Hawaii uh, with uh, another staff member, another Sea Org member. And we went out there in order to get the, to extract some of the staff members there and send them to flag in Clearwater for a special training program that was happening at that time. Every single church uh, around the world had to send, it was supposed to be three, minimally two staff members in order to train on what was going to become the golden age of tech. So they were going to be course supervisors and word clears. And uh, Hawaii was not making it work. They were one of many orgs that was tiny, podunk little places you know, we're talking five to ten staff members, and they couldn't afford to let any of their staff go, and they didn't have the available resources to, to, you know, to make it work. So we went out there to basically kick their butts and send somebody anyway. And it was one of those things where Hubbard's policies specifically state that when you have a staff member on a post doing his job, you leave him alone and you make him, you know, you just get his job done. And you don't just rip people off because you have a necessity over here uh, you find somebody else and you plug them in and that's how you build an organization. But uh, in times of desperation where there were, you know, 
we had to get things done by certain timing because there was going to be this release and all these people had to be trained in order for the release to even happen. And it had to be that every org was going to have somebody uh, or people who were trained in order to deliver this release. We could not have even one podunk org not have its staff go to flag for training. And so we had to go out there and basically kick their butts. And really what we ended up doing was kicking their butts to violate L. Ron Hubbard's policies in order to comply with Miscavige's orders. And this is just another example of what I've talked about in earlier Q&A episodes about how Scientologists pretend that they follow L. Ron Hubbard's policies all the way up to the point where David Miscavige issues an order that contradicts Hubbard's policies and then the policy goes out the window because there's no way to get both things done in a condensed period of time. That all aside, the trip to Hawaii my first time was pretty short and um, we stayed at the, the person who I went with uh, was from Hawaii and so we ended up staying with his folks. Uh, which was kind of interesting. He got to see his parents and he had he was from Hawaii so he had been a staff member at the Hawaii org before he had ever gone into the Sea Org many years before. So he regaled me with tales about old Hawaii and how Hawaii used to be a bigger more active Scientology scene back in the 70s and what they would do is they would take literally they did this and he said he was telling me in surprise like he couldn't believe that people actually would fall for this or that they would do this but but it did they did in the 70s they had white unmarked vans <laughs> i think they had one or two of them and they would go down to uh this was all in in honolulu they would go down to waikiki beach the church was actually about three or four miles or maybe 10 miles away from where the beach was. And if you've been to Waikiki, you know all the people are down by Diamond Head and on the beach there in downtown. Uh, or they're over at the um, the ship, I don't know, was that the Missouri, the, the, the sunken ship from Pearl Harbor, that memorial. Or they're up on, you know, they're out surfing or there's, you know, whatever they're doing. They're certainly not over in the sticks looking for the Church of Scientology. So they had these unmarked vans, this white van, and what they would do is literally they would drive the van down to the beach, a couple of Scientologists who were, there, the term was body routers, the people who would have to get bodies and bring them over to the church, would say, hey, you want to, you know, see something really interesting. You want to do something amazing for yourself. You want to find out something about yourself you never knew. You know, whatever sort of come online they would use and they would pile people into these vans and sometimes it was only one person and sometimes it was a group of people but people would actually get into these vans not knowing who these guys were and be driven you know miles away and they're told you know we'll drive you back and they did um, and they take them over and they do a personality test and they would do the whole you know thing with them that we've talked about on this show many many times and uh, try to get them to become Scientologists, or at least buy a book, and then drive them back to the beach. And, uh, and that was the way they, they got, you know, people into Scientology back then. Now, at any one time, if I, if I, if I remember these statistics right, if, and, and I'm sure anybody correct, will correct me if I'm wrong on this, but uh, about a third of the population of um, Oahu is... Uh, tourists <laughs> at any one time. 
So, you know, you, you, this, this was not a way to necessarily find the local Scientology, local people and, you know, sell books to them or get them to do personality tests or become Scientologists. And so this only had a limited degree of success. And they, but they did get some locals on board through this, and they sort of built up a little bit of a Scientology community there in Hawaii. And back in the 70s, apparently, like I said, it was, it was a pretty active, happening place. Like it was all over the you know, United States in the 70s, Scientology was way more active back then. Uh, it wasn't anywhere near as, as uh, much of a you know, weird creep fest as it became. Um, it was still bad, mind you, but not as bad. So then I was sent out to Hawaii, I think, three more times during the, t during the course of my Sea Org career. Uh, for um, an extraction to get one of the staff members into the Sea Org. Uh, which was basically the same thing as what we did back in the in the 96. We I just went out there, took this guy and sent him off into the Sea Org. And uh, uh, then I was out there for a couple other org handling things uh, to you know because the kind of projects that the Sea Org sends out are sometimes recruitment projects or missions to recruit people for the Sea Org. Other times it's to fix something wrong in a Scientology church or to, you know, kick their butts and get them to fix it. And so, um, so by the time I was familiar with Hawaii and was going out there a few times, uh, it was not a very active, thriving situation. I mean, we're talking about five or six staff members. And the staff there had been Scientologists since the 70s. I mean, they were the guys who had gotten in the van <laughs> had gone down and checked it out and thought it was so cool, they stuck around. And they never left, you know? And it's really just a little handful of these people. Uh, they were the hardcore, dedicated Scientology is, you know, is the thing to do, and they just dedicated their life to it. One of them was a Hawaiian, um, Wilbur, really nice guy. I mean, the, the Hawaiians were super nice people. They really were. And I always enjoyed going to Hawaii, of course, for obvious reasons. Not because I was out there surfing or anything, by the way. I barely got it out, got out to the beach at all. But Hawaii is just a really nice place, and uh, it's a little expensive. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm <laughs> if you like spam, it's the place to go. But um, uh, but Scientology-wise, it's pretty dead. And uh, as far as I know, there is nothing that's changed since I left the Sea Org. Uh, what five, six years ago? I mean. You know, still a little podunk place. We never see in all of the promotion and uh, things that leak out of the church, I barely ever see anything about Hawaii. The IAS doesn't even go out to Hawaii that often because it's an expensive flight to get out there. And there's not a lot of return. You know, there's a, there's a few people in, in Hawaii who have a lot of money, who used to be Scientologists, but... You know, I don't know that they even give money anymore. So that's uh, so I think it's pretty dead out there, and it's gonna and it would take a major, you know, resuscitation, and 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 probably people coming from you know America from the from the uh, continent out to the out to the uh, you know like like actually got to move some people out there in order to build up a, an organization out there that's actually going to be worth anything. So I don't think Hawaii, I think Hawaii is probably going to be the last or one of the last ideal orgs if they even make it at all. Johnny Newspaper Seed. I have some questions about bull baiting. 
I hope I'm using the right term. I'm referring to the practice where you sit still for hours while someone tries to distract you by yelling, joking, etc. I'm currently reading Jenna Miscavige Hill's book in which she describes how her 15-year-old friend had to endure what were basically hours of verbal sexual harassment when a fellow student kept commenting on the shape of her breasts. That made me wonder, is there a script or any guidelines or limits as to what may or may not be said to a person during these exercises? Hypothetically, if someone decided that the best way to get a reaction was to ridicule and insult Hubbard or question his teachings, would he or she still get in trouble afterwards? Will personal information be used to get the trainee to react? If they're black or gay, might racist or homophobic slurs be used? And as far as you know, have any of these sessions ever resulted in broken up friendships or even physical altercations? Going back to Jenna Miscavige's example, I'd imagine that things between her friend and the other student got pretty awkward later, no matter the context. But maybe I'm putting too much of an outsider's perspective on it. What exactly is the point of this exercise? Is it to train auditors not to react emotionally to even the most absurd or upsetting things an auditee might say? Or is it supposed to toughen you up like some kind of military drill? Is this used on public or staff slash C-Org only? All right, the TRs and TR zero bull bait. All right, so uh, I'm not gonna do a whole little seminar right now on all the TRs. There will eventually be a video in my Basics of Scientology series about Scientology's theories or Hubbard's theories about communication and these drills because the drills are all focused around improving one's communication skills. Um, TR0 bull bait, though, let's just go ahead and focus on that for a minute, uh, is part of this, this series of drills. And um, the specific purpose of bull bait is to train a student to not react uh, under any circumstances to anything that the person is saying to them uh, or doing. You know, just, just sit there and comfortably, easily, relaxedly confront the person in front of you no matter what they're doing so that you don't get tongue-tied or startled or thrown off or, or in any way um, nervous or anxious or, or you know, re reactive to what anybody, anywhere, says or does to you. So basically, you're able to maintain control and stay in charge and be composed and be uh, centered and uh, focused on what it is you're trying to say or do despite people you know, ridiculing you or throwing you off. And I'm going to say that that's a skill that actually has some merit and value in real life. Because if people can't push your buttons as easily as they can somebody else's, especially if they're trying to bully you or something, then they'll you know, likely go on to easier prey. And also, it helps focus a person's direction on you know, what they're trying to do or what goal they're trying to achieve or whatever they're trying to uh, accomplish. And, and they don't let themselves get thrown off by things. Um, now, of course, like anything, and especially with Scientology's twist on things, they take it to an extreme that becomes a little ridiculous. And you have this whole thing I've talked about before of no case on post, get your TRs in, you know, these phrases that are used in order to make a person not show in real life, not during the drill, but in real life, not exhibit emotion or have valid human reaction uh, to things that they should have reaction to or should be emotional about. All right, now as far as bull bait goes though, and the, and the most important part about the drill is, like the other TRs, 
these were made to train auditors. They were not made so that people would be able to talk a little better in real life. That was sort of a side effect of the TRs. That was something that, that you know, the social value of TRs and the, the use that they would have in business or in, you know, in, re in personal relationships, that was all secondary to what they were made for, which was to train auditors. When you're doing Scientology auditing on somebody, um, you're putting them into, let's say, I will, I will say you are putting them into sometimes altered states of consciousness or, or, or being. Uh, you're sending them back into their past. Uh, sometimes you're having them relive in their mind incidents of trauma and stress and real pain and suffering that they have experienced. And sometimes that gets really, really uncomfortable uh, for the person who's going through those experiences. And they will sometimes uh, kind of lose their manners, lose any, any sort of idea of the fact that you as the auditor are there to help them and are working with them to get them through whatever this stressful traumatic incident or or you know traumatic episode you've sent them back in into you know they'll they're so into it that they might start flailing around they might try to hit you they uh certainly can verbally assault you in any number of ways try to get up and leave the room i mean all kinds of things happen in auditing sessions it's it can get pretty rambunctious sometimes rarely but it can happen and the auditor is expected to get this person through the process and out to the other side where the person has experienced a relief and a, a devaluing of the stressful traumatic episode. So during the course of that, if the auditor starts reacting to what the person's saying or doing to them, or if they start getting their buttons pushed personally and they get mad at the person or they start shouting at the person or they start... You know, the auditor I'm talking about now, not the person who's receiving the auditing. They can do whatever they want in the session, and often do. But the auditor has to maintain his presence, and, his, uh, and he has to stay kind of focused and relaxed and kind of, you know, get this person through whatever it is that he's put them into. So, and this is all, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying all this from the point of view of whether it's right or wrong or good or bad that this, that this whole thing is happening. Sometimes it's helpful to people. Most of the time it's, you know, not really a whole lot of good. But, you know, this is an auditing session. This is what happens in Scientology and in Dianetics. So the training that the auditors do, this bull bait drill, is designed to make sure that the auditor is not going to freak out have a you know reaction, get mad at the person, or or start crying, or get introverted or upset by what the person at the other end of the line is 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 saying or doing. And like I said, in an auditing session, anything goes. You never know. You know, the most mild mannered, chill, calm person uh, can go into an auditing session and become the most. It's like it's like the Hulk. I mean, it is suddenly, whoa, what is going on? I mean, they just, they just it's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, they just turn into something you never imagined was even inside of them. And it comes out, and it can get really ugly really fast. So the auditor has to be prepared for that. That's, what, that's the main line purpose for bull baiting. All the social stuff 
Scientologists would just go, sexual harassment? What the hell are you talking about? That's not any part of what this drill is, is supposed to be for. That's what they would say, okay? I get your point, but, um, but for the purposes of the drill and the reason why you're doing the drill, you're setting yourself up to go into an auditing session and deal with somebody else's bullshit, you know, the, the, the stuff they got to deal with, the, the, the crazy that exists in their head. And you're going to bring it out. So you better be ready for that monster when it comes out. And, um, and you don't, you know, go into an auditing session um, and, and blame the person that you're auditing for anything, that, like at all. Uh, you would, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, I don't know, I don't know what it's like. It's, it's just itself. It just is what it is. The way Scientology treats an auditing session is pretty unique. Uh, it doesn't compare to a psychiatrist or a psychologist uh, who's giving counseling to somebody. Because in that kind of a situation, if you start verbally abusing the psychologist or the psychiatrist, it's perfectly within, they're perfectly within their rights to pack up and say, okay, well, I'm not here to be, you know, your whipping boy or, or you know, take your abuse and you can go find another counselor and, and maybe they'll be interested in that, but I'm not. I need you to, you know, calm down and just talk to me. I could see that happening in a counseling session, not universally. I mean, not just because you managed to say one wrong thing, but, you know, if some people tried to pull what goes on in Scientology auditing sessions in a psychiatrist or a psychologist's office, you know, it, it would be a very different situation. So it's not quite like anything else. No auditor is ever ever under any circumstances going to bring legal action against a preclear the person that they're auditing pretty much for any reason i mean if, if you know it's i don't think it's ever happened that a preclear has gotten so out of control that they tried to murder the auditor or something i mean i've never seen anything like that but even then um, you know, the auditor's job is to be in charge of the room, the environment, and what he's doing and getting this pre-clear through the counseling process, okay? I think I got that point across pretty well. So, in social situations, you know, all of this applies to a much lesser degree, you know? Uh, Scientologists don't enjoy having people yell and scream at them or getting in their face or verbally taunting or assaulting them more than anybody else does. In real life circumstances, they're not interested in tolerating or putting up with that any more than anybody else is. But the whole point of the drill is to flatten those emotional reactions or those knee-jerk responses that people have in order to put them in a position where they're more in charge of their responses and their reactions and they don't do things uh, that they might later regret, for example, or have to, or feel compelled to, you know, say something or respond in some fashion to what's being said to them. So anything goes in a bull baiting session, so long as when they're sitting across from each other doing the drill, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm I'm gonna confront you, and that means I'm really just gonna sit here and not react. And the person who's bull baiting me can say anything, anything, nothing is off limits. They can't do anything, though. They can't rip your shirt off. They can't fondle you. They can't, you know, there's, there's limits on that. It's not clearly stated in the drill, but 
pretty much the you know cultural rules around bull baiting are you're not you know you don't get to sit there and you know I've seen people shake the person being confronting right grab them by the shoulders and sort of give them a shake or something or you know get in their face clap right up against their nose right not really touch the person but get right up on them and the person's just supposed to sit there confronting literally this was actually filmed by L. Ron Hubbard uh, you know no blinking no reacting at all so you'll sit there and you'll just like clap in their face and the person's just supposed to sit there and and confront you um, I've seen personal jokes personal anecdotes stories told um, you know like I said any insult totally okay homophobic racial whatever doesn't matter so you know I think that's the whole point of it I don't really know what else I could say I think that covers everything in your question and um, and again I, everything I've just said while you know I might be talking about what the positive results of the thing are I would not suggest that people go do those drills I think there's other ways of of accomplishing some of that without the Scientology nonsense and extremism that goes on Mary Beth Wiley what are Scientologists taught about Siberia USA and is this a factual thing Scientologists are taught that uh, in the 1950s a bill was being put forward in Congress that a psychiatric facility was going to be set up in Alaska that was going to be this great big huge expanse of land that was going to be given over to the psychs so that they could create their own sort of concentration camp up there where anybody could be sent who was a political dissident or someone who was somehow not liked by the government and the psychiatrist would take care of the person and uh, Hubbard thought that this was a completely authoritarian move that was you know one step short of uh, Russia you know and of course this is in the 1950s when the Cold War is in full bloom and there is a great deal of paranoia about the threat of Russia and communism all over the world so the idea of authoritarianism this is also in the 1950s when McCarthyism and the Red Scare was going on so it was not hard to jump onto that Red Scare McCarthy bandwagon and put forward the idea that maybe somehow you know this is encroaching on America and of course Hubbard's hatred of psychiatry mixed into this brew so that uh, he was saying that you know this was real this was happening you know this was kind of you know Alex Jones kind of conspiracy kind of stuff um, because what really was going on if I remember correctly I didn't you know look all this up uh, today but there was a bill it was an attempt to create a large uh, psychiatric facility up in Alaska they wanted uh, to um, get some land um, what's the word uh, just sort of corralled off for this purpose and um, it ended up getting defeated I don't think it ended up passing uh, Hubbard had organized a big mail-in campaign letter writing campaign which was back in the 1950s of you know sort of the equivalent of trying to make something go viral on the internet I mean it was a it's an, it was an effective way of trying to fight something if you could get a lot of letters written um, the Scientologists you know wrote letters but uh, ultimately I think there was some other some other considerations at play as to why that bill didn't get passed and uh, that's that's pretty much all I can say about it Eric Kerner what kind of mic is it you're using you sometimes use a pop filter sometimes not do you only use the one mic 
Hey Eric, thanks for the question. So um, I use two different kinds of mics. You can see here my um, the mic that I use for my podcasting. I usually sit here uh, or if I'm doing interviews and stuff, I sit here and I'm facing the screen and I've got the mic pulled down and that's what you see. And I have a pop filter and I have used it, but I found it kind of not really, I didn't particularly notice a difference between having it or not having it. Um, the microphone here, this is the same kind of mic as that one is. It's an Audio-Technica. Uh, and this, the lapel mic, which is, I'm wearing one right now, is just a generic $15 uh, lav mic, that, uh, um, which is short lavalier, a lav uh, mic, which is just a clip-on mic. And I used, I got it off Amazon for like 15 bucks. So that's the equipment that I use. Barney Sanders. Was it fair of Louis Theroux to criticize Marty Rathbun for cutting and running when the system turned against him, or is Marty no different from any other Scientologist in this regard? Was this one of your issues with Louis's Scientology documentary? I've watched your review of his documentary, by the way. Hey, cool. Uh, Marty Rathbun. Okay, so I did not have that problem with the documentary. That wasn't my issue with that. My issue with the documentary was that Louis was focusing on uh, Marty Rathbun to the exclusion of the bigger, wider, more common experience of Scientology. Marty tried to uh, get across, you know, some auditing and some TR stuff and what that was kind of about. And he talked candidly about certain aspects of Scientology, but um, where, you know, Marty was kind of being the Scientology apologist in a way, and Louis was holding up Marty as though Marty was your average Joe Scientologist, or at least he was representing Scientology. And I thought Stephen Mango, Mark Headley, uh, you know, other people who were featured in the documentary, I can't remember if Jeff Hawkins was in it or not, but they would have been more, you know, lower level common, you know, experience of the Sea Org in Scientology than Marty Rathbun. Marty was, you know, at the very, very top. He was right below um, David Miscavige, chairman of the board of, of the Religious Technology Center. So he, he, you know, his experience of Scientology was not, you know, what everyone else experiences in Scientology. And I thought Louis would have had a more interesting and more honest, you know, uh, rendition of what Scientologists actually think and what Scientology is really all about if he had focused on some of those other people. As far as Marty goes, I don't blame Marty for taking money or whatever deal it was he got from the church in order to drop his lawsuit. Actually, I should say I blame him a lot, but I understand the position that he was in and I understand the amount of pressure somebody is under when the Church of Scientology is gunning for them flat out full time and uh, you are their prime target. And Marty definitely put himself in those crosshairs. And I guess he got to a point where he just kind of got sick and tired of it. It upset a lot of people because he was representing a lot of us ex-members with his lawsuit. Not legally, not like we were tied to the lawsuit, I mean in a you know more general sense. Um, and it was the most powerful and most striking lawsuit that was being brought against the church uh, for their harassment against someone who was never a Scientologist and Marty, you know, Marty's wife. And, um, and, it, and we had a lot of, you know, kind of thoughts and prayers and hopes connected with that case. We thought that uh, it was moving forward at great guns, it was going to keep going forward, and we thought it was going to actually expose some things that 
really need to get exposed in the court of law. Um, and that didn't happen. And so obviously there was a lot of anger and upset and disappointment about that. And all of that was directed correctly at Marty uh, for pulling the plug on the whole thing. So he never made any formal statement as to why he did what he did other than some general nonsense that really didn't make sense to anyone. I can't remember what his statement was, but it really didn't make sense. He screwed over his lawyer in the process. Someone who had dedicated years of unpaid work, you know, on that case, and he didn't get a thing for it. So that wasn't cool. Uh, and generally, he acted like, you know, the ass that he is. So that was kind of, you know, why we all went, ugh, on that and got really mad. <laughs> but my beef with Marty uh, and dropping that case, I mean, again, I recognize that it's his right to do that. So I don't say all this with the, with the thing that Marty didn't have the right to do what he did. It's just that he really, you know, upset a lot of people in doing it because we were really counting on him. Uh, he didn't ask for us to count on him. You know, he didn't ask for us to be a cheering squad, but, you know, at the same time, he never said stop, <laughs> you know. Uh, he was, you know, fully, seemed very, very happy with the adoration and the, and the support, uh, you know. So I don't, you know, so it's just kind of a big, messy, ugly situation, and it's in the past now, and Marty has thoroughly debunked himself uh, with his inane set of videos that the church obviously put him up to. I mean, you know, the idea that he that he dropped the case and decided to go completely wholly anti-Leah, anti-Mike, anti-everybody, you know, and call us all, uh, uh, you know, an anti-Scientology cult and this kind of thing. I mean, come on, man. You know, he didn't do that on his own. So uh, that's, anyway, that's all I can say about that. The thunder and the lightning and the flashing, it, it must be time for flash answers. Laura Llewellyn. In the past, you and others have spoken about the poor medical care Sea Org members receive. Do Sea Org members living in countries that have universal health care, United Kingdom, France, Australia, Canada, etc., receive better medical care? Yeah, I'm actually sure that they do, if and when the Sea Org will actually let them go to the doctor because that's another factor and problem with the Sea Org is they're so isolated and insular in the little bubble world and it's so hard to get out of that world if you have to do something crazy like take care of your body or you have some medical situation. There's a lot of social pressure within the Sea Org to you know, clam up, shut, shut up, and use Scientology exclusively and only to deal with your medical problems. So if you can get past that barrier, then I don't think finances were as big of a problem in those countries that have universal health care. Michaela Reedmiller, what was your most misunderstood word while listening to lectures? It's a funny question. It doesn't really totally make a lot of sense because words are not like most or less misunderstood. Um, but I do have an answer for you actually, uh, because there was a word that Hubbard put to, that Hubbard gave a definition to that never made any sense to me. And I couldn't find any other way of clearing this word or understanding it other than to sort of vaguely understand Hubbard's definition for it and go, well, I guess that's just going to have to be the way it is. And that was the definition of the word energy. 
Uh, Hubbard described energy as motion, as a, as a, you know, a force or uh, motion in a certain direction. And at its lowest, lowest, you know, most subatomic uh, sense, it was a motion within a motion. And if that makes any sense to you guys, you can let me know, but it sure didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. <laughs> I, I sort of bundled it into this thought of, well, I guess at the, at the bottom of everything is nothing, and we just kind of consider that things exist, and therefore they exist, so I guess that explains it. RJ Key Dev. Did you ever, I suppose more in a sec check, just tell the auditor what they want to hear, just to get it over? Oh yeah, absolutely I did. Um, during sec checks and during regular auditing, you just kind of get, you get to a point after a few hours, you're ready to go, you're sick of what's going on, and you just go, okay, you know, I'm done, I've, I got past whatever point it was I was supposed to achieve in this session, and I just want to get out of it now, so uh, let me see, think happy thoughts, okay, there's a happy thought, okay, good, your needle's floating, great, okay, we're done. <laughs> you know, that was kind of how it went. Okay, everybody, thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blabber on for another week. Uh, this is episode number 175. Man, a lot of questions answered, a lot of water has gone under the bridge. Um, if you're enjoying my channel and think that this is something that is entertaining, educational, and informative, please join me on Patreon and support this channel because it is you guys who keep this thing going. And I have gained some wonderful Patreon supporters recently. I've also lost a couple. It's a, you know, there's an in and an out to it. So I'd appreciate any support you guys can throw my way. All of it helps. All of it makes a difference and uh, helps keep a roof over my head and uh, these computers on so I can do the research I'm doing and give you the videos I'm giving you. Thanks for coming around and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.